بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد فان احسن الكلام كلام الله وخير الهدى هدى محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم وان شر الامور محدثاتها وكل محدثه بدعه وكل بدعه ضلاله وكل ضلاله في النار we continue today inshallah ta'ala with uh, the remaining hadiths which are outstanding in this work we have reached at hadith number 20 uh, this work that we are going through is a brief compilation 40 hadith al-arba'una hadithan fi fadli la ilaha illallah 40 hadiths on the virtue or the excellence of la ilaha illallah the statement or the declaration la ilaha illallah in the previous uh, lesson we looked at a number of hadith which are connected which basically connect the kalima to death and a person testifying the one who dies whilst testifying that none has the right to be worshiped except Allah and that Muhammad sallallahu is the messenger of Allah expressing this with certainty with yaqeen except that he will be forgiven his sins and so there were numerous hadiths which are connected to that issue and we're going to continue today uh again connected to death and this is hadith number 20 and the chapter heading bab al-hath ala talqin al-mauta la ilaha illallah which means chapter regarding encouragement of those who are dying to say la ilaha illallah and so this hadith is from abu sa'id al-khudri radiyallahu anhu who said قال قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم لقنوا موتاكم لا اله الا الله رواه مسلم the hadith is reported by muslim and in this hadith abu abu sa'id al-khudri radiyallahu anhu he said that the messenger of allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam said لقنوا موتاكم لا اله الا الله which means to encourage your dead meaning those who are dying encourage them to say la ilaha illallah so what are the benefits that we can take from this hadith uh, the benefits number of benefits first of all clearly in the hadith there is a command that the one whom you see approaching death to whom death has come that you encourage him to say la ilaha illallah you repeat that to him and so you encourage him to say that This in itself is an indication of the excellence the fadl the virtue the greatness of this declaration in that we are trying to make a person seal his life to seal his life with this great and mighty declaration of tawhid that none has the right to be worshiped except Allah alone and that's why we see in another hadith authentic hadith in which the messenger of allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam he said man kana akhiru kalamih min ad-dunya la ilaha illa allah dakhala al-jannah the one 
whose final words in the world, in the life of this world, are la ilaha illallah, then he will enter paradise. He will enter paradise. And so as for the one who, to whom death has approached, then obviously he says this, um, as he repeats this kalima, and if he makes some other speech because someone else is present, then he repeats the kalima again because he wants his final speech to be the kalima. And this is how it is when a person is ill, for example, or death is close and there are people around him and perhaps he has things to say. So what we find from the statements of the scholars is that should anything like that take place, then a person should repeat La ilaha illallah until it is always the last thing that he that he says upon his departure from this world. And obviously also uh, in the hadith also is an encouragement for people to gather around the dying person in order to encourage him to say La ilaha illallah. Also to uh, remind him to keep him company and likewise to close his eyes when he dies and to fulfill the various rites which the deceased person has upon his relatives, you know, from the point of death onwards. And also what this hadith indicates as well is the sakarat, the sakarat of maut, meaning those, the throes of death, the pangs of death when it comes to you. And, um, and hence the need for people around you to encourage you, to incite you to say la ilaha illallah. Because as, as the soul is departing, it can sometimes be difficult for a person. So he needs encouragement and incitement and reminder. And so this is something which is legislated as indicated by this hadith because the Messenger of Allah said, So this is hadith number 20. And before we move to the next hadith, next hadith relates to what is in the grave. After death, what is in the grave. You will recall from previous lessons that we have come across many a hadith which speak about the greatness of the declaration La ilaha illallah and how it expiates sins and how it enters a person into paradise. And all of those texts which would seem to indicate to a person how easy it would be to get into paradise. And as we mentioned these ahadith, we, we, we also indicated and alluded to the fact that a person should not be deceived and uh, think to himself and justify to himself that he can commit sins and persist in committing sins and delude himself into thinking that texts like these will save him from the punishment of Allah. Even though we know that these texts are true, they are true. And they are, they are general. So in that regard, because this, this issue will come up again a number of times in the remaining hadith, then there's a really nice passage from Ibn al-Qayyim, rahimahullah, that I wanted to mention in relation to this topic. And this is taken from his book, Al-Jawab al-Kafi, Liman Sa'ala Anid Dawa Shafi. One of his great and tremendous books, which is to do with... Uh, uh, the title is the sufficient reply to the one who asked about the, uh, you know, the curing medicine. So it discusses the issue of sin and things of that nature. But at the beginning of the book, he has a section called, or which is 
related to how people misunderstand the issue of istighfar. How people misunderstand what it means to seek forgiveness from Allah Azza wa Jal. And he says that many of the people were kathirun min al-nas yadhunnu annahu law fa'ala ma fa'al thumma qala astaghfirullah zala al-dhamb wa raha hadha bihadha. Many people think that if they were to do whatever they were to do, meaning of sins, commit sins, and then he just simply said, Astaghfirullah, then the sin will, will, will be gone, will end. And he can relieve himself of this, meaning the sin, by way of this, meaning saying Astaghfirullah. And then Ibn Al-Qayyim goes on to mention people whom he encountered in his life, who he came across, who were deceived in this manner. And so he says, وَقَالَ لِي رَجُلٌ مِنَ الْمُنْتَسِبِينَ إِلَى الْفِقْحِ A man who ascribed himself to fiqh. He said to me, he said, أَنَا أَفْعَلُ مَا أَفْعَلُ ثُمَّ أَقُولُ سُبْحَانَ اللَّهِ وَبِحَمْدِهِ مِئَةْ مَرَّةِ وَقَدْ غُفِرَ ذَلِكَ أَجْمَعَهُ كَمَا صَحَّ عَنِ النَّبِي صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمُ أَنَّهُ قَالْ مَنْ قَالَ فِي يَوْمٍ سُبْحَانَ اللَّهِ وَبِحَمْدِهِ مِئَةْ مَرَّةِ حُطَّتْ عَنْهُ خَطَايَاهِ وَلَوْ كَانَتْ مِثْلَ زَبَدِ الْبَحْرِ That a man who ascribed himself to fiqh said to me, I do whatever I do. Again, alluding to sins. And then I say, Subhanallah, وَبِحَمْدِهِ 100 times. I repeat it 100 times. And that will make all of it to be forgiven. And they cited the hadith. Whoever says in a single day, Subhanallah wa bihamdihi 100 times, then all of his sins will be erased, even if they are like the, you know, what is on the, the ocean. And then he goes on to say, another person I met in Mecca from the people of Mecca. He said, when one of us, whenever he does whatever he does, meaning of sins, he makes ghusl, and he goes and makes tawaf, tawaf around the bait, around the house, around the Kaaba, uh, for a week, and all of that will remove his sin. And then he gives some other examples, um, people mentioning texts to do with forgiveness, and then he says, وَهَذَا الضَّرْبُ مِنَ النَّاسِ قَدْ تَعَلَّكَ بِنُسُوسٍ مِنَ الرَّجَاءِ وَاتَّقَلَ عَلِيهَا This faction of people, this category of people, we see that these people, they, they attach themselves to the texts in which there is hope for the believer. Those texts which mention Allah's mercy, Allah's forgiveness, the vastness of His, of His generosity and mercy. And so they become attached to these texts which are texts of hope. And they begin to rely upon them. And when He is criticized when he's found you know when, when a person finds fault with him for his sins and things like that he says that he will um, uh, cite to you he will mention to you whatever he's memorized of the texts which mention the the vastness of the mercy of Allah and his forgiveness, and the text of hope. And he says, the, 
um, the ignoramuses who are from this category, you find that they have many, many strange and amazing affairs which are like this. They have many amazing statements. Like, for example, they say, they say, for example, تَرْكُ الذُّنُوبِ جَرَاءَةً عَلَى مَغْفِرَةِ اللَّهِ وَاسْتِغْغَارِ He says, some of the people say, that to abandon sins is to be bold towards Allah's forgiveness. Look at this mentality. Meaning, he's saying, that if you abandon sins, you are basically you're trying to be bold in the face of Allah's forgiveness. And some other, other ones they say, uh, he, uh, he cites from Ibn Hazm, who said that I heard some of these people say in their dua, Allahumma inni a'udhu bika min al-isma. Oh Allah, I, forgive, uh, I, I, I seek forgiveness from you, from al-isma, from being infallible. From being infallible. Meaning, this is like a kind of justification for, the, for, not, for, 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 for not avoiding sins. To continue falling into sin. And likewise, another one, he has similar, similar statements. So all of this, Ibn al-Qaim is pointing out that this is a misunderstanding of what it means to make istighfar. Meaning that you treat these texts as easy salvation. An easy way to enter into paradise. That you commit sins, that you do not fear Allah, that you do not have remorse in the heart. And you treat this like as if it's a game. That you continue in per, you know, persisting in sins. And then, subhanallah wa bihamdihi a hundred times. Do tu'af, do an umrah. And your thinking is along the lines of what, 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 is what we find in the mentality of these people. And this is not really how the heart of a believer is. Because as we mentioned, there are texts which mention hope. And there are texts which mention fear. There is al-wa'ad, the promise of Allah, of forgiveness and paradise and mercy and so on and so forth. And there is al-wa'id. Al-wa'id is the threat of Allah, the threat of punishment, of hellfire and calamities and you know punishments in this life and the next and in the grave. And so the believer, his heart contains both fear and hope, not just hope. Because with hope, that, that, that excessive hope which he has will cause him to continue committing sins because he's exaggerated in the hope. And he will omit the issue of fear. That fear will hold him back from committing sins, that fear of the punishment of Allah. So, this is a misunderstanding of the issue of al-istighfar. And many, many people, they use these texts which relate to the kalima. The kalima, la ilaha illallah. Man kana akhiru kalami. The, who's, the one whose last words, la ilaha illallah. Or the one who testifies that none has the right to be worshipped, except Allah. And, you know, I am the messenger of Allah. He will enter paradise. So all of these texts, no doubt, they are true. Of course, they are true. And, you know, uh, they have their explanation. But... To misuse those texts is something that is, that is great and mighty indeed. Likewise, Ibn al-Qayyim continues and he says that there are other types of people who have uh, justification for sin. And these justifications also, they are based upon a misunderstanding of the kalima. They are based upon a misunderstanding of the kalima. So from them, 
Other people are the people of Jabr. The people of Jabr, this means there are those people who claim that every person is compelled in his actions. He's forced into his actions and he has no choice. This is an astray group called the Jabariyyah. And they believe that man really, he does not have any free choice. Rather, it is Allah who is uh, forcing people to do these actions. And they don't really have any choice. So, these people, you can see what their argument would be. Their argument would be, well, if Allah wanted to make me righteous, he would have made me righteous. But he chose to make me a sinner. And he's made me do these actions. He's decreed these actions upon me. And so on this basis, they you know, justify falling into sin by way of this deviant notion or this deviant idea. So we see, and, and obviously this issue of Jabr, it demonstrates a misunderstanding of the kalima la ilaha illallah. It is a misunderstanding of the tawheed of Allah Azza wa Jal. Because even though Allah Azza wa Jal he is the creator of man's actions. He creates man's actions because he created them. He created their bodies. He gave them will. He gave them choice. He gave them the limbs with which to act. He sent them guidance. He told them right from wrong. So, you know, he, he created them like this. But any actions they do, they are their own actions. They are not the actions of Allah. Allah only creates the actions. But the people are the doers of their own actions. And they have free will and they have free choice and they are shown right and wrong, which means that they are accountable for their actions. And so a correct understanding of Tawheed, Al-Qada, Wal-Qadr would make a person not to fall into the likes of this deviation and this misguidance. So we see that a faulty understanding of the religion, a faulty understanding of belief in Allah and the foundations of Iman, it can lead people to misguidance which is like this that's jabr likewise those who uh, are upon the deviation and who say that actions are not from iman actions are not from faith faith iman is only in the heart and nothing else it's only what your heart contains of belief in allah his names his attributes his existence his lordship his you know and as long as you affirm that, then actions do not come into Iman, they do not affect your faith, they do not cause your faith to increase, nor do they cause your faith to decrease. It is only in the heart what counts. So again, you can see how this notion, this idea, will make people to become bold towards sins and disobedience, and to believe that as long as in their heart they, they believe in Allah, they believe in paradise, believe in hellfire, then no matter what they do, their faith will not be affected. This again is another poisonous, deviant idea which leads a person to abandon the rights of La ilaha illallah. Because La ilaha illallah, the kalima, a declaration, when a person declares it, it has rights that follow on from it. And the rights that follow on from it are the obligations which Allah commanded. And to keep away from the prohibitions which he warned against and cautioned against. These are from the rights of La ilaha illallah. So, the matter does not end just by simply saying La ilaha illallah. Rather, there are legislated actions which follow on from that. And that's why 
we also mentioned previously in the previous lessons, we said that many of these texts that speak about the kalima, that whoever says La ilaha illallah, sincerely from his heart, these texts were at the beginning of Islam. They were at the beginning of Islam in order to make people leave shirk and to enter them into Islam and to show them the tremendous mercy of Allah for a, the, for a tremendous mercy of Allah for a person who dies upon Tawheed, who abandons false deities, and who you know singles out Allah in His worship. And at that point, there were no there was no legislated actions at that point because we know that the prayer was not made obligatory except at the very end of the period in Makkah. And the other major obligations like zakah and the pilgrimage were only made obligatory towards the you know in, in the period in Medina towards the end. And likewise the prohibition of some of the major sins, the major disobedience, like for example riba, usury, or alcohol was gained towards the later period. So we have to understand that uh, the amount of iman which was obligatory upon the early Muslims, it varied in accordance with how much of Islam had been legislated. So at the beginning, we saw that the messenger would call the people to testify that none has a right to be worshipped except Allah. And that, in that time, would be al-imanul wajib. The obligatory iman. That would be the obligatory iman in that time. Because this was all that was revealed in that period. Then as more and more revelation came, and more and more affairs were mentioned about the unseen and belief and so on and so forth, then to have belief in that was wajib. And then as the legislated actions were revealed, then to act upon them was wajib. And then as the prohibited actions were revealed, then to abandon them was from iman, and was from the obligatory iman. Meaning, that if you left that iman, left that action, you would be punishable, you would be sinful for doing that. So the point being, as Shaykh al-Islam Ibn Taymiyyah explains in Kitab al-Iman, he discusses this issue, and he says that al-iman al-wajib, the obligatory amount of iman, it varied from the beginning of Islam to the completion of Islam. And what was obligatory varied in that time period, and it would also vary depending upon the knowledge of each person, right? Because some, some people might not be, some companions might not have been aware that such and such command has been revealed upon later on, until later on. So the iman which was wajib upon them was according to what they knew. So the point from all of this discussion, what is the, what is the point from this discussion? The point from this discussion is that what is obligatory upon a person is al-imanul wajib al-imanul wajib and this goes beyond just merely saying the kalima la ilaha illallah the kalima la ilaha illallah it enters a person into islam but then it has rights and those rights are the obligations and keeping away from the prohibitions and that is al-imanul wajib and a person who does not bring that iman which is wajib he will be sinful and he will be punished for that. And so from this, this idea or this notion of al-irja, which is expelling actions from faith, this is a poisonous, toxic, destructive, deviant idea. 
to say that actions are not from faith. Rather, actions are from faith. Actions are essential to faith. Actions are part and parcel of faith. And without actions, a person's iman cannot be valid. Cannot be valid. So this is, so we have, so, so this actually goes back to the issue of uh, using the texts of the shahada and the kalima and Allah's mercy and Allah's forgiveness. It's these types of people who use those types of texts. Likewise, we see another example from among the Sufis. The Sufis, these people, they believe that by showing or having attachment to the people who are dead in the graves or to the various mashayikh and to the righteous and just simply loving them, that this in itself, in and of itself, is sufficient for them to be saved. Even if they themselves do not pray, do not fast, do not keep away from what is haram and they engage in, in sins, they simply believe that just by having love for these righteous people and showing them devotion even, that this in itself <coughs> is something that will lead Allah to forgive them because of the love of the righteous people. This again is another type of deception. And it also, and these people you see that they will go to the graves and the tombs and they will do actions there, some of which will amount to worship, actual worship. And they believe that they will attain Allah's forgiveness on account of this. And this again is deception from shaitan. It is a misunderstanding of the kalima. It is a misunderstanding of tawheed. And this shows that these people are far, far away from understanding the kalima and its requirements. So this is the third way in which people, they neglect the rights of la ilaha illallah. And they find justification by way of, you know, by way of this method. So we have jabr, we have irja, we have what the Sufis do. And many of these people you see that they, there's no, if you were to enter into their homes... There's no, there's no deen in their homes. You don't see any deen. Uh, you don't see any deen in their children. And you, know, you see the household is really far, far away from how a Muslim household should be. You see sins. You see disobedience. You see absence of observing the, the basic obligations. The women will not be dressed properly. There will be music. There will be you know, all sorts of things happening in the home. And then these same people you will see, they will travel once a year to some tomb or some you know, mausoleum or something. Or they will give much of their wealth to some, you know, peer or sheikh or someone. And they believe that this attachment and this love that they show will be enough to get them salvation on Yawm Al-Qiyamah. Whilst they are the most ignorant of people of what La ilaha illallah means. And they are the most furthest of people from, you know, from the obligations which Allah enjoined upon them. So this again shows a departure from the rights that follow on from la ilaha illallah. Likewise, you see, and then Ibn al-Qaymi continues to mention how people become deceived in different ways. Some people are deceived by way of their forefathers. And um, they think that because of their forefathers and their, their, their predecessors, that they will be saved on account of that, just because they have some lofty station or position or status. Others um, also are deceived by the fact that they mention certain texts. Like, for example, let's give a couple of examples. 
that Ibn al-Qayyim mentions, he says some of them, they depend upon the fast of Ashura. When the fast of Ashura comes, because we know there are texts that mention the fast of Ashura in, uh, on the tenth of Muharram, and they say, they say, fasting the day of Ashura, it expiates the sins for a whole year. And on top of that, we even have the fast of the day of Arafah left after that, which brings even which brings reward, increase in reward. So Ibn al-Qayyim, he retorts back to the likes of these people and he says, and he gives a nice clarification about this issue. He says that this deceived person does not understand that fasting Ramadan itself and praying the five prayers, they are greater and more lofty than fasting the day of Arafah and fasting the day of Ashura. And these affairs, meaning the, the, the basic obligations that we should be doing, which is the five prayers and you know, uh, the fasting, things like that, that a person who sticks to these affairs, all of, it, all of his sins will be expiated for, as long as he avoids the major sins. As long as he avoids the major sins, then all of his other sins will be forgiven. So Ramadan to Ramadan, Jumu'ah to Jumu'ah, they will uh, remove the sins, but only if a person abandons the kabair, abandons the major sins, right? So, uh, in other words, what the, the message that's being given here is that it doesn't mean that just because you fast the day of Ashura or you fast the day, uh, the, the day of Arafah and you use the likes of these texts that automatically your sins will be forgiven. No, rather... You, what you do is you support and you strengthen the cause which the day of Arafah has been made and the day of Ashura has been made because they've been made causes. So you strengthen these causes by doing the other things which is fulfilling your obligations. And when you fulfill your obligations, prayer to prayer, Jum'ah to Jum'ah, Ramadan to Ramadan and so on and so forth, then what, what this does, this now strengthens the other reason. It strengthens the day of Ashura, strengthens the day of Arafah when you fast them. And when you keep away from the major sins, between those, you know, between Jum'ah to Jum'ah, prayer to prayer, Ramadan to Ramadan, then all of that will make sure that Arafah and the day of Ashura, the fasting, it removes your sins, it removes your minor sins. This is what is meant. You can't isolate texts and not look at texts, you know, isolated away from other texts. So Ibn al-Qayyim, he goes on to explain this in a bit more detail. He mentions the ayah, in تَجْتَنِبُوا كَبَائِرَ مَا تُنْحَوْنَ عَنْهُ نُكَفِّرْ عَنْكُمْ سَيِّئَاتِكُمْ If you avoid the major sins which you have been prohibited from, then we shall expiate for you your sins. For you, for you your, your sins. Surah Nisa, Surah 4, verse 31. So, so from all of this we understand that again mentioning the same thing that the kalima la ilaha illallah yes it is true it is a great and mighty statement it enters people into paradise it saves them from hellfire but there are obligations and rights which follow on from this kalima and many of those texts that mention those things they were mentioned at the beginning of islam when there were no legislated actions when there weren't really any prohibitions and the people were still committing sin like in the period in mecca Many of the people who accepted Islam, they were still committing sins, the sins which were not prohibited up until the, the period in Medina. 
those texts are to be understood in that particular context. So once this is clear, we'll move to the second uh, hadith. And this hadith now takes us to after death. And the bab, Allah ilaha illallah, tunji min adab al qabr. Chapter that La ilaha illallah is something that saves and delivers a person from the punishment of the grave. So the hadith is from Al-Bara bin Azib radiyallahu anhu an Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam qal idha uqida al-mu'min fi qabrih when a believer is made to sit in his grave thumma shahida an la ilaha illallah wa anna muhammadan rasulullah fadhalika qawluhu yuthabbitu allahu alladhina amanu bil qawli thabit so Al-Bara bin Azib radiyallahu anhu he said from the Prophet who said when a believer is made to sit up in the grave so once he's died once he's died shrouded washed shrouded buried and you know the soul uh, uh, you know was taken before death and then uh, when he's in the grave and he's made now to sit up and he then testifies that none has the right to be worshipped and Muhammad is the messenger of Allah then this is the statement of Allah this is what is referred to by the statement of Allah in Surah Ibrahim in which Allah he says Allah will make firm those who believe with a firm speech in the life of this world and in the hereafter this قول, this القول uh, thabit, this firm speech, what is it referring to in this ayah? It's referring to the fact that Allah will give success to a person in the grave in saying the shahada, in saying the testimony. So there are uh, reports by Al-Bukhari. There are numerous benefits from this hadith. First of them is, again, the excellence of La ilaha illallah in that it is a cause of the deliverance from the punishment of the grave. A cause of safety from the punishment of the grave. And we see that uh, Al-Bukhari, when he mentioned this hadith, we see that he gave it a particular chapter heading. And he mentioned it in relation to the punishment of the grave. And so Ibn Hajar, he actually mentions, uh, alludes to this, uh, and Ibn uh, al-Bukhari, rahimahullah, he takes this uh, fiqh from the, from the hadith by giving it the relevant chapter heading. That's the first thing. Second thing, the hadith affirms that there is life in the barzakh. That in the barzakh, there is life. Which means that life is of three types. Life in the life of this world, which we experience and witness. Life in the barzakh, which takes on a particular form, and life in the hereafter, which takes upon a particular form. And the scholars, they actually mention, uh, such as Ibn al-Qayyim, rahimahullah, in Kitab al-Ruh and, and others, that when we look at life, and we look at the soul and the body, we see that there are different types of connection between the soul and the body. So, for example, in the life of this world, the connection between the soul and the body is such that the body is really the primary is is at the is uh, you know is is in front and is at the lead and the soul follows 
And so the body is really the primary, primary recipient of things like pain and pleasure and things like that. And then it falls upon the soul as well. The broad body is the primary you know, the recipient. And then in the grave, we see that it's the other way around. We see that the soul is at the front and the body is, is, is behind. And the body only feels things as a, as a consequence. But the soul is the primary thing. And then on Yawmul Qiyamah, when there is everlasting life, then the connection between the soul and the body will become perfect and complete and at, at its height. Meaning, uh, you know, the soul and the body will be able to feel and perceive and recognize things in the greatest way possible. And so this means that the reward will be tremendous. It will be felt in a tremendous way. And the punishment likewise will be felt in a tremendous way. Why? Because the body and the soul have been connected in the most perfect of ways. As opposed to, you know, in the world or the barzakh. So the scholars mentioned this. So in this hadith there is an evidence that there is the life of the barzakh. The third benefit that we take from this is obviously that the first thing a person will be asked about is the shahada la ilaha illallah. Is the statement la ilaha illallah and Muhammad Rasulullah. Also what the hadith indicates to us is that the person will be made to sit in the grave. Because this, this person, he will be made to sit in the grave and also the hadith indicates that there will be angels who will come. And we know this from other texts. Uh, they have been named in some of the texts with Munkar and Nakir. And so we believe in these angels. And they have been given this specific duty. And so this hadith indicates that as well. Likewise, fifth benefit is that Allah in accordance with that ayah, He will give the believer firmness in the grave to answer with the correct question. And he will give them thabat, he will give them firmness. And this indicates that the situation is a very, very dire and a difficult situation. And we should point out as well, as the scholars also point out, that the ability of a person to answer the question, the ability of a person to answer this question in the grave, to say the kalima la ilaha illallah and to explain who is his lord and to explain what was his religion and to explain who was this man that came a person's ability will be in accordance with the extent to which he actualized the kalima meaning to the extent that a person there was tawheed in his life there was you know, he, he, he fulfilled the rights of the kalima la ilaha illallah. He kept away from, you know, the, the prohibitions. He kept away from sin. And all of those meanings that Tawheed inculcates, or which it should inculcate in a person, for example, of loving only, you know, making one's love for Allah, and making one's fear for Allah, and hope in Allah, and tawakkal in Allah, and you know, seeking help and aid from Allah for isti'ana and isti'ada, seeking refuge in Allah. All of those meanings which are which are from Tawheed, that to the extent that a person actualized these in his life, to that extent will it be easy for him to, to answer these questions in the grave on Yawm Al-Qiyamah. And so this 
indicates to us that if we want this difficult time to be made easy for us in the grave, then a person must abide by and actualize what the Tawheed of Allah, what this kalima of Tawheed, what it requires from him. And this, of course, this returns back to the issue of knowledge, of ilm. It goes back to studying Tawheed in detail, returning back to those foundational books. Al-Usul al-Thalatha, Al-Qawaidu al-Arba' Kashf al-Shabuhat, Kitab al-Tawheed, and, you know, and so on and so forth. And learning about all of the, uh, you know, the, 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 these affairs. And to the extent that a person is grounded in these affairs, to that extent will, he, will it be made easy for him to answer those particular uh, questions. This now leads us to the third hadith for today. This is hadith number 22. And this is a famous hadith known as the hadith of the Bitaqa. And this hadith, the hadith is from Abdullah bin Amr bin Al-As, radiyallahu anhu. Uh, who said, Samitu Rasulullah Sallam Yaqul. So he says, I heard the Messenger of Allah Sallam say, Inna Allaha Sayukhalisu Rajulan min Ummati ala Ruusil Khalaiki Yomal Qiyamah. Fayan Shuru Alihi Tisatan Watisaina Sijillan Kulu Sijillin Mithlu Muddal Basar. Indeed, Allah will bring out a man. Uh, from uh, from amongst my nation, meaning from the hellfire, or he will bring him, and in front of all of the creation on Yom Al Qiyamah, and he will spread open for him ninety nine scrolls. So this man will come, and uh, when he when when he's brought on Yom Al Qiyamah, he will be put in front of all the people, and opened out will be ninety nine scrolls. Every scroll is as far as you can see, as the, as, the, as, as the vision of a person can see to the distance. And then it will be said, he will, he will, he will be said, Atunkiru min hadha shay'an. Do you deny anything from this? So all of what he sees in his scrolls, it will be said to him, do you deny anything from this? And it will be said to him, did my writers, my, my scribes who wrote, those preserving scribes who wrote, did they, were they unjust to you in any way? So meaning, that look at your scrolls and look into them and did the angels who wrote down, did they wrong you in anything? Did they write something in here which shouldn't be in here? Did they miss, you know, did, did, they, did they put a sin that you didn't commit in there? Did they wrong you? So he will be asked these questions by Allah Azawajal, by his Lord. So he will say, no, my Lord. He will find that he has not been dealt with unjustly. So then Allah Azawajal will say, Do you then have any excuse? Have you got any excuse? So the man will say, no, my Lord, oh, my Lord. بَلَا إِنَّ لَكَ عِنْدَنَا حَسَنَةٌ وَإِنَّهُ لَا ظُلْمَ عَلَيْكَ الْيَوْمِ So then Allah Azawajal will say, Rather, you have with us a good deed. And indeed, there will, no be, there will be no oppression against you today. فَيُخْرَجُ 
بطاقة فيخرج بطاقة فيها أشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله. So then he will bring out or it will be brought out a بطاقة meaning a scroll, a small like a card, a small scroll, and within it is I testify that none has a right to be worshipped except Allah and that Muhammad is his servant and his messenger. And then it will be said, bring forth your uhdur waznak, bring, bring, bring your weight, bring the, the scales and bring the weight. So this man will then say, oh my Lord, because now he knows it's going to be weighed. He's, the, the 99 scrolls, and this one small little, you know, bitaka, this uh, small scroll. The scales will be brought. And so the man is looking and he will say, Oh my Lord, ma hadihi bitaka, ma hadihi sijillat. He will say, what, what is this small scroll compared to these, you know, huge scrolls? And then Allah will say, فَإِنَّكَ لَا تُظْلَمْ He will say to him, you will not be wronged. So then, the, the sajillat, the scrolls will, will be placed in a kiffa in, 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 in one side and the bitaqa will be placed in the other side and then what will happen is that the scrolls of sin will be fly up like this they will fly up like this and the scroll with the, with the bitaqa which is the kalima it will become heavy and go down like this and then it will be said وَلَا يَثْقُلُ مَعَسْمِ اللَّهِ شَيْءٍ that nothing is heavier than you know it will be heavier compared or next to the name of Allah, next to the name of Allah. So this is brought by Ahmed and Tirmidhi. <coughs> Shaykh Al-Bani declared this hadith to be authentic. And once more we see again the greatness of the statement, La ilaha illallah. And there are numerous benefits we take from this text. So from those benefits is first of all that we see that actions, actions will be weighed on Yawmul Qiyamah. This is from our belief. We believe that the scales which will be set upon Yawm Al-Qiyamah, they will be able to weigh the deeds of a person, the scrolls of a person, and the person himself. And so the scholars, when they discuss this issue of the scales, um, you know, they say, will there only be one scale? Are there many scales? Will, you know... What will be weighed? Is it just the scrolls? And so the scholars explain that there are numerous uh, scales and um, the scrolls of a person will be weighed and the deeds of a person will be weighed and a person himself will be weighed as well. And as for the deeds of a person, these are things that we cannot understand. We cannot fathom how can a deed of a person be weighed. This is something from the unseen, but we believe it to be true and real. Because um, these affairs are from the affairs of the unseen. And Allah Azawajal, His creation, we don't really fathom all of His creation. Like for example, the hadith that we just looked at, the Barzakh. The Barzakh is, you know, so we have the dunya, which we, what we see, observe and witness. So we have the akhirah, which is present, but we cannot see it. The akhirah, the, the Jannah, Hellfire, they both exist. But we can't see them. And we don't know the reality of how they are like. Likewise, there is the barzakh. Likewise, there is the world of the jinn. Likewise, there is the world of the angels. We cannot see and fathom these things. But the life of the barzakh, it exists. And within that realm, we see other, you know, the dead people, the souls of the dead. And 
you know, they either, they are either receiving bliss or they're receiving punishment. We can't fathom any of that. We can't understand any of that. But it exists side by side with the life of this world. We can't perceive it. We can't study it. We can't investigate it. We can't detect it. It's not, not possible. In a similar manner, there are things within Allah's, you know, what Allah has created uh, that will take place on Yawm Al-Qiyamah, such as the weighing of good deeds. The weighing of good deeds. This is something that is true and real and we believe in it even if we cannot fathom it. And this is the distinction between the people of truth and the people who follow the sunnah and those other people like the Mu'tazila. The Mu'tazila, they are rationalists and they believe that in order for you to accept something to be true, it has to be, rush, it has to be intelligible. It has to be rationally understood. You have to be able to understand it. Otherwise you can't accept it. This is false. This is false. And, and even from worldly experience, we know it to be false. For example, if you were living a thousand years ago or 500 years ago, and someone was to say that it's possible for you to speak to someone on the other side of the world, in that time period, that would be unfathomable. You could not fathom and, and rationally understand and accept that this is something that would be true and real. Right? That person would probably be accused of magic or something and whatever else. But within Allah's creation, there is within Allah's creation mechanisms by which indeed that thing can take place. And now we know in the 20th, 21st century, in fact at the end of the 19th century, the 21st, that we know that there are waves and information can be transmitted through the waves and can be received by the waves, things like this. And indeed you can speak to a person on the other side of the earth. Because there is mechanisms within Allah's creation that allow for that to take place. In a similar manner, so just because something is unintelligible, and it's not rational to us at this point in time, does not mean that it is not true. That's why this makes it easy for us to accept these things which are mentioned in the texts. Because we do not know all of Allah's creation. We, don't do, we do not know the amazing wonders and the surprises and the, you know, the skill and the itqan, you know, the, 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 the beauty, precision, and the... the which, which still lies in Allah's creation, which we haven't discovered, which we don't know yet, and which we will never ever discover. So th that is why it is totally rational and reasonable to believe in the likes of these affairs. Right? So we, don't, we, we shouldn't be, uh, become, um, you know, in, 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 in front of those who mock and make fun, like from among the non-Muslims, and say you people believe in fairy tales and fairy stories and this, whatever. We shouldn't feel like that in front of these people. Rather we, feel, we say no. It is from reason itself to believe in the unseen. It is rational to believe in the unseen. In fact, every person, he must believe in the unseen. Because there are things that that person cannot see himself with his own physical senses. Or there are things which are in Allah's creation that it is impossible for them to be perceived by the senses. Or like the angels or the jinn or things like that. So it is totally rational to believe in the affairs of the unseen. Right? And this is a key principle of our belief and we oppose the Mu'tazila, those people who try to you know, make everything that it has to be rational, uh, uh, rational, it has to be understood, it has to be... The... No, 
where did you get this where did you get this from so this is this is incorrect so that's the uh, first point that we believe in the scales that they are physical scales that will be able to measure the actions of the servants secondly the hadith obviously mentions the angels which write the deeds of a person we believe that the angels exist which write the deeds of every single person and that, the, that a person will never ever be wronged whatsoever it will be completely and totally accurate not an atom's weight will be missed not an atom's weight will be added which shouldn't be there of good or evil and vice versa right complete perfect recording nothing missed at all and that's why on yawm al-qiyamah when it comes every person will be astounded at the detail of the record and allah subhanahu mentions this in surah al-kahf the 18th surah mentioning on yawm al-qiyamah wa wudi'a al-kitab the book will then be placed fatara al-mujrimina mushfiqina mimma fi you will then see the criminals they will be fearful out of what they are going to find in it from what is in it wa yaqulun and they will say ya waylatana ma li hadha al-kitab they will say woe be to us what is it with this book لا يغادر لا يغادر صغيرة ولا كبيرة إلا أحصاها. It is not it is not left it is not left out a, a small thing or a large thing except that it has enumerated it. ووجدوا ما عملوا حاضرا and whatever deeds they did they will find them present there. ولا يظلم ربك أحدا and your Lord does not wrong anyone. Surah Al-Kahf verse number forty nine. Also from the benefits we take from this hadith is a mention of the adal the justice of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that he is free from any type of dhul wa ma rabbuka bidhallamin lil abid we read in another ayah your lord is never one to be unjust to his servants and we see that so obviously you can see in this hadith how just Allah is because when a servant comes uh he will not wrong him in the sense that the angels which recorded his deeds will be completely accurate he will then be presented with his own deeds and will be asked have you been wronged he will ask him and inquire from him do you believe that you've been wronged is there anything that's wrong here and likewise he will not hide anything of goodness from anyone he will bring it out and likewise he will also give a chance chance to a person to make the excuse Do you have any other do you have any excuse So look at all of this is all from the justice of Allah azza All of these things that each servant will be faced with how is there how can we say there's any injustice in any of this <coughs> So also from the benefits is that Allah azza he is free and removed from injustice And we do not say like the Mu'tazila say that it is impossible for Allah to be unjust because if by definition a person cannot be unjust then that is not really a praise of a person if he is not unjust if you understand meaning that if it's impossible for a person you can't praise a person for not being unjust if it's impossible for him to be unjust this is one of the points that the scholars mention in refutation of the mu'tazila rather we say that if allah wanted to be unjust to his servants he could be 
but he is not unjust to his servants. And this within this is a praise for Allah Azza wa Jal. This is a praise for Allah Azza wa Jal. It's like saying, for example, if a man um, if a man was you know wheel bound in a chair and disabled and therefore he's not able to commit murder or something like this, can you praise this man for not committing murder when he's not even able to commit murder? How is that a praise? It's not a praise. It's not a praise at all. Because he doesn't have the ability to do so in the first place. Or likewise, when a man has the ability to give effect to his anger and to harm someone, but he withholds. Only now can you say this is, this is a praise. Yes, this, this man, you know, he, 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 he was not unjust, he was not violent, he, was not, he did not commit any wrong. This is a praise of this man. This, this is how it's a praise. So we differ from the Mu'tazila. The Mu'tazila say there are certain things which are impossible for Allah. It is impossible for Allah to be unjust. And again, they are using their reason and rationale and they're not, you know, looking at the texts. Rather, we say that if Allah wanted to be unjust, He could be unjust. But because He is Al-Adl, because He is the most just of all people, then He will never ever wrong His servants in anything. And only this is a true praise of Allah Azza wa Jal. So this hadith establishes the perfect justice of Allah and that He will not wrong anyone. Also the hadith establishes how Allah Azza wa Jal loves, He loves to give His servants a chance to make an excuse. Allah loves to give his servants an excuse. And that's why we see in another text that this is why he sent the messengers. He sent the messengers in order to, you know, so that the people don't have an excuse. The messengers he sent, so that they can't come and argue afterwards and say, well, you never sent us a messenger. You never sent us guidance. You left us without guidance. So Allah, he sends them uh, messengers. Also from the benefits from this uh, hadith is, you know, the point which relates to our topic which is the excellence of La ilaha illallah in the sense that when it will be put on one side of the scale, all of the other 99 scores, they will fly upwards. In the case of this man, they will fly upwards and this kalima will fall downwards because of the heaviness. And um, this indicates that the, all, all of the evils on one side, you know, they were made very, very light compared to the statement La ilaha illallah and this is because Tawheed is the greatest of all good deeds. Of all of the good deeds, which is the weightiest and the greatest? It is La ilaha illallah. So obviously it is going to weigh heavier than everything else. And again, this statement is for the one who says it and he did not contradict it by any action which involves major shirk. Right, is the one who was free from invalidating this statement by way of you know major shirk and things of that you know of that nature which impair or which invalidate a person's uh, tawheed. I think we'll conclude uh, with that amount for today, inshallah ta'ala, uh, and we will continue inshallah uh, in the next lesson with hadith number twenty. Three, inshallah. So we'll conclude there uh, for this lesson. Walhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Wa sallallahu ala nabiyyina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in.